0: And please open your Bibles to Acts chapter six. Again, that's the book of Acts chapter six. Adolescence is, uh, for many, a time filled with confusion and uncertainty, right? Relationships which were once simple suddenly begin to come more complex. There's often this sense of, uh, trying to discover one's place in the world and not knowing either what it is or, or even how to figure it out. There's this tension that exists as others treat you like a kid while expecting you to act like an adult. And then you add into it the intensity of emotions that you begin to feel at that time. And, and for very many, it's a time of, of bittersweet turmoil. It's a period of life that we look back on with a kind of oddly fond nostalgia. While at the same time never wishing to go through it again. I think if we were to assess where that confusion comes from, so much of it comes from the fact that adolescence is a time of change, it's a time of transition. Not only are you beginning to look more and more like an adult physically with growth spurts and all of that, but you're maturing mentally as well. You're starting to develop your own thoughts, your own opinions. And as you transition from childhood to adulthood, there's all kinds of changes that that neither you nor the people around you are entirely prepared for. I can still remember riding in the back of our truck after my brother first got his learner's permit. He was the older brother, so he was the first one to learn how to drive. And and there's my mom in the passenger seat, and every time my brother approaches a stop sign, she's beating the dashboard with her left hand as if that somehow is going to keep the car from rolling through. That's adolescence in a nutshell. More and more you have the ability to act like an adult, and so more and more responsibility is added to you, but at the same time, there's a lot of question marks. You're still learning how to live and act like an adult, and others are trying to learn how to treat you like an adult. There's a mental shift that has to take place as the teenager assumes a new place in the world. And both they and everyone around them have to relearn how to interact with one another in light of this increased maturity. Again, that's where the confusion comes from. It's a time of transition where increased abilities lead to increased responsibilities and a reorientation of the teenager's place in the world. There's a sense in which you can say that a church plant is very much like a growing child in this respect. As the plant begins, things are very basic. There aren't that many people attending, and so there aren't a ton of needs. And that means there isn't a whole lot going on at the church. Things are simple. I think I've shared this before, but when Cornerstone started with three families, we basically just had two meetings during the week. There was a Sunday morning uh, service, of course, and then there was a midweek prayer meeting. Because there wasn't much need for anything more than that, nor did we have the ability to minister in more ways than that. That's part of the challenge of a small church. Not only do you have fewer people to minister to, but you also have fewer people available to serve. You start trying to do a bunch of organized ministries, and all you end up doing is ministering to an empty room because all the people in the church are serving in order to make that ministry happen. So things are simple early in the plan. You don't need a bunch of scheduled weekly meetings or anything like that because most of the ministry in the church is one-on-one. It's very basic, very simple. But as the body grows, as it matures, there are not only increased needs, but there are also increased abilities. There are more and more people added to the church who are able to serve. And since there are more people attending, there are also an increase in the ways that we can serve one another. Suddenly, we're not ministering to an empty room anymore. You can have multiple members engaged in a task, and there are still people left to benefit from that service. I think you've probably seen this start to develop as we added Sunday schools last year, and now even with the nursery that we have going this year. Before it was kind of pointless to do something like a nursery during the service since it would basically be the couple of families that had young kids doing nothing more than watching their own kids in the nursery. It didn't make any sense. Now that we have several young families that makes sense. It still requires a lot of commitment on the parts of those families involved more so than what you'd probably find in a large church but it's still meaningful for at least a few weeks out of the month those parents get to direct all their attention at the teaching of the church rather than trying to listen while parenting at the same time. There's a benefit there. We get to serve one another in that way. Now we can try to teach kids during Sunday school, and we still have an adult Sunday school at the same time. That wouldn't have made sense three years ago with the number and the age of the kids here in the church. It makes sense now. And I could go on. Fellowship groups, our foundations group, even the preaching class I teach once a month, those are all things that made sense only as the body has grown and matured increased ability has led to an increase in responsibility. The body has grown little by little, no doubt, but it's grown. And as it's grown, there are not only greater needs, but also an increased ability to meet those needs. The church is, in this sense, very much in a time of transition. And it's with this in mind that I would like to discuss the office of deacon with you this morning. You see, when you examine the New Testament, one of the things that you find is that mature churches, and by that I don't mean mature with respect to the individual members, but mature with respect to the growth of the corporate body, mature in the sense that the body is doing all the things that's been designed to do, Mature mature churches function under the direction of two distinct offices, that of the elder and the deacon. Again, these are two different offices in the church, the elder and the deacon. And what we find in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1 is that these offices coexisted with one another in the early church. Up to this point in the life of our church, we've only had one of these offices in operation. That's the office of elder. And for reasons that I'll explain this morning, that's because the office of deacon hasn't been needed yet. In fact, as I think you'll see in just a moment, you could argue... That the office of deacon still isn't needed yet. But we're getting there. We're getting there. It may not be a need yet, but we're, we're close. It could be soon. In short, the church is in a kind of adolescence. We're not yet quite to the point that we're functioning in all the ways that a mature church does, but we're getting there. We're approaching that stage. And just as a lot of confusion and even conflict occurs in adolescence because there are these growing responsibilities and and abilities that redefine the teenager's place in the world and the people around them, their parents, for instance, sometimes adjust to those changes too late, so also there is the potential for confusion and even conflict. If elders are not proactive... In responding to the fact that the church is growing up. That it's approaching corporate maturity. And that it needs to be treated as such by delegating the responsibilities that the New Testament calls us to delegate. So Clint and I want to do that. We want to be proactive in addressing this change, perhaps even before there's need for it. So that once there is a need, we're ready. We don't want to be reacting. We don't want there to be any confusion in the church. We want the transition into maturity to happen smoothly. What this requires, according to our bylaws, is that we announce to you, the members of the congregation, that we're taking nominations for the office of deacon. Uh, We are an elder rule church, and that means that the final decision regarding who's installed in this office uh, to some degree comes down ultimately to Clint and I, to the elders, uh, but there's a precedent set in the New Testament that seems to indicate that it's important that the congregation have, not even not just some input, but a lot of input as to who takes this office. So the way this works in our church is you nominate who you think is qualified for this office, who you would like to see in this office, and then from those list of candidates, Clint and I will assess who to install. For this to happen, you need to know how this office works. And who the Bible says would be a good fit for it. Clint and I aren't the only ones that need to know that because we're not the ones making the decisions only in this process. You have to know it because you have the very important responsibility of nominating candidates for this position. The significance of that responsibility cannot be understated. I'll explain this a whole lot more as we get into the, how the bylaws work next week. But, but not only will we assess only the candidates that you nominate but we're going to take into strong consideration those candidates who the congregation seems to most want. Meaning, if there's a unanimous choice among you for someone to take this office, it's only going to be with the greatest of reluctance that we're going to deny them that office. We're more or less trying to follow your lead here. You're the one choosing who the deacons of the church will be. All we're going to do is affirm your choice. So it's really important that you know how to make that choice. And that's what I want to explain for you this morning. I want to teach you what the office of deacon is according to the scriptures and what the qualifications of this office are so that you're fully informed and equipped to make this choice. For the sake of clarity, I want to break this discussion down into three parts. We're going to actually tackle this over two weeks. First, we're going to discuss the function of the deacon. So what the deacon does. And that's what we're going to discuss today, the function of the deacon. And this comes from Acts chapter 6. So again, if you haven't turned already and you want to follow along, go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, Acts chapter 6. Second, we're we're going to discuss the authority of the deacon. The deacon's power in the church. That's going to come from a combination of Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. We'll start to get into that next week. And then finally we'll get into the qualifications of the deacon. That will also come next week. And I want to do that part last, the qualifications, because I think the qualifications make the most sense once you understand what this office is about. If you can understand what this office is for and what authority has been granted to it, then the qualifications are going to make a ton of sense. They're going to be a no-brainer. I think if you can understand those three categories, the office, the authority, and the qualifications of the deacon, then you'll start to have a good idea of who might be suitable for this office. So let's begin with the first category here. Number one, the function of the deacon. That's what we're talking about today, the function of the deacon. A little girl was once helping her mother cook a delicious Christmas ham, and as she was watching, she observed that before her mother placed her ham into the pan, she cut off both sides of the ham. That seemed kind of odd to the little, to the little girl, and so she asked her mother, she said, Mama, why do you cut off both sides of the ham before you put it into the oven? Her mother answered, well, I'm not sure, honey, I just know that that's the way my mother taught me to make ham. That made the little girl curious, and so... When her grandmother came over later that afternoon to eat dinner with the family, she decided to ask her. She said, Grandma, earlier today, Mama and I were cooking the ham, and I asked her why she cut off both ends of the ham, and she said she didn't know. She said, That's how you taught her to do it. So could you tell me why? Why do we cut off both ends of the ham before cooking it? And her grandmother answered. She says, You know, I've never really been so sure myself. That's just how my mother taught me to do it. I guess I just always figured it helped the juices soak in or something like that. That answer seemed pretty reasonable, but the little little girl wasn't quite satisfied. And so when her dad showed up with her great-grandmother, a little bit later after that, she decided to ask her. As they sat down to eat their Christmas feast together, she said, Great-grandma, why do we cut off both sides of the ham? I asked mama, and she said she learned it from grandma. Grandma said she learned it from you, so can you tell me why do we do that? And her great-grandma just paused for a moment, let out a little chuckle, and said, Well, you see, sweetie... I never had a pan big enough to fit a whole ham. So I always had to cut the ends off before I could use it. This is the problem, right? When you don't get into the all-important question of why. Why do we do the things we do? You end up doing things merely for the sake of tradition without ever understanding the purpose, and that's what you end up with, just tradition. It's when you don't understand the purpose of a tradition that you end up making mistakes with it. This is why we need to understand the function and the authority of the deacon. Understanding the deacon's qualifications can be helpful, but if you don't understand why those qualifications specifically have been selected, then it's going to be difficult to know how to properly apply them. And that's what the function of the, and the authority of the deacon do for us. They help us understand why these qualifications are set in place. They explain the tradition for us. And that helps us understand how to apply these qualifications in our present context. So once again, both the function and the authority of the deacon help clarify this for us. Today we're just looking at the function of the deacon first. So what does the deacon do? What's their job? What's their role in the church? We can know this in part simply from the title deacon. Simply from the title deacon. Just like you can tell what elders are supposed to be and do from the terms attached to them which are presby- uh, presbyteroi, which is elder, and episcopoi, overseer, meaning that they're experienced Christians whose task it is to oversee the church. In much the same way, the title deacon tells you a whole lot about what you need to know about this office. The Greek word diakonos, from which we get the term deacon, means simply servant. Or more specifically, Waiter. You go to John 2, for instance, and the servants who bring out the wine at the wedding at Cana are diakonoi, deacons. Thus, deacons are servants. They are, in a sense, the waiters who serve the church as they feast on the word of God and on the grace given to us in Christ. What does this look like specifically? I think we see a tremendous example of this in Acts 6, 1-7. Again, if you haven't done so, turn there. Let's follow along together. Acts 6, 1-7. In Acts 6, Luke tells us this. He says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, "...whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem." And a great many of the priests came obedient to the faith. What do we see in this passage? Well, first off, the church is growing. This has been one of the major themes of Acts 1-5, to the, the rapid expansion of the gospel. 3,000 souls are baptized on Pentecost in Acts 2. More are being added to that number day by day at the end of chapter 2. Peter speaks in Solomon's portico in chapter 3, and Luke notes that of just that, uh, the men in that instance, more than 5,000 souls were added to the church. By Acts 5, there are even more believers being added onto that, multiples of both men and women, according to Luke in verse 14. So the church is expanding rapidly. There are probably easily over 10,000 members of the church at this point. And not only this, but the church is experiencing fantastic fellowship at this point in time. Acts 2 says that at this point in time, believers were selling off their possessions in order to hold it in common so that the poor among them might be taken care of. They were meeting together day by day in the temple, and they were constantly enjoying meals together in one another's homes. This is echoed again in Acts 4. There it notes that there was not a needy person among them, quote, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The way that this fellowship, this tremendous outstanding fellowship is expressed here by the time we get to chapter 6 is through this daily distribution of food to the widows in the church. Keep in mind, there wasn't really anything like our modern welfare system in place in Israel at this time, and women really couldn't do too much to provide for themselves, and so after a woman's husband passed away, she was put in a position of tremendous financial need. This would be especially true of the widows who were Christians. Since very early in the church, faith in Christ often meant excommunication from one's own family. So you have these widows who are in need. Perhaps they've even been disowned by their own families. They are are unable to provide for themselves. And so the church is taking this collection of money as being laid at the apostles' feet, and they're using it to purchase food to distribute daily for the widows in the church. But then, verse 1, a conflict arises. The Hellenists start complaining against the Hebrews because their widows are being overlooked. The Hellenists are, are Greek-speaking Jews. They're Jews who live out among the diaspora. They're among the Jews who have been exiled from Israel, who have, who have taken up residence in foreign lands, and then they chose not to return to Israel after the exile was lifted. They would often travel up to Jerusalem for the festivals, but they didn't necessarily live in Israel. Traditionally, there were a lot of tensions between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews because the Hellenistic Jews not only tended to act more like Gentiles than the Jews who were living in Israel, but also because they were often also almost seen as less spiritual for refusing to return to Israel after the exile. So everything in the church is, is growing, going great, but then the Hellenistic believers start to notice that their widows are being overlooked. And they start to take it personal. There's this whole history of tension between the two groups, and they start to think that maybe this is intentional. Now, whether it's intentional or not is not entirely clear. After all, we're talking about a lot of believers here. So the list of widows is probably pretty substantial. And I think it certainly seems out of character for the church to act this way at this time. This seems to be a problem that develops in the church, rather than something that's there from the beginning, right? Right? So the error here is probably just administrative. There doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of organization going on in the church at the time. After all, everything's still new. They're still learning how to operate as a church. So this doesn't appear to be intentional. But whether it's intentional or not, it's happening. And it's a major problem because it's starting to disrupt the harmony of the church, the harmony that they've been enjoying since all the way back in chapter 2. So what do the apostles do? Verse 2, they determine that something must be done to address the problem, but they agree they shouldn't be the ones to handle it, since that would distract them from the main job that God has given them, which is the spiritual oversight of the church. And so verse 3, they say to the church, Brothers, you pick out seven reputable men who you think should be assigned to the task, and then, note here, they say, Pick out these men whom we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles are the ones appointing the men to the task, but they're asking the church to select the men they want assigned. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in this. After all, the apostles would be considered among the Hebrews. The complaint is coming from the Hellenists. So if they pick out the men and then the problem continues... Right or wrong, suspicions are going to be confirmed. The Hellenists will become convinced that the Hebrews are against them, and so the harmony of the church will be disrupted. The apostles don't want to contribute to that confusion in any way, and so they say, you pick out the men you want. And who does the church pick out? Verse 5, they select Stephen and Philip and Prochorus. They pick Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Basically, they pick out seven Hellenists. That's what the names tell us. They're Greek names. They pick out seven Hellenists, seven men, who could therefore be trusted not to overlook the distribution to the Hellenistic widows. Verse 6, the apostles affirm the church's selection. They pray over them, lay hands on them. And then, verse 7, look what happens. The church keeps right on chugging along. More disciples are added to the church. Even a lot of the priests are starting to believe the crisis that starts to come up in verse 1 has been averted. And the gospel continues to advance. It would appear that what we see here is the very first example that we find in church history of deacons being added to the church. Now, they're not called deacons at this point, nor nor should we expect them to be. After all, this is the very first time something like this has happened. So it wasn't as if there was already an office called the deacon before this point, which the apostles are then choosing to appoint men to. Rather, this is an office that's being developed as the church is facing a a new kind of obstacle for the very first time. So we shouldn't expect them to be called deacons here. There's no title for this yet. But when you note that in verse 2, the apostles say that it isn't right for them to give up the preaching of the word of God to, quote, serve tables and then appoint these men to do just that, then it's probably reasonable to infer that these are the very first deacons. In fact, it may even be where this title, deacon, waiter, comes from. It may come from the precedent that's established here in Acts 6 where the very first deacons were appointed specifically to distribute food. So, this being the case, what does this passage tell us about the function of the deacon? What does the deacon do? And I think we can define the office from two different angles. First, we see that these deacons are assigned to care for the physical needs of the saints. The deacons are assigned to care for the physical needs of the saints. This is evident from the fact that the apostles say that they should not neglect the preaching of the word in order to wait tables. So the apostles recognize they have a a spiritual responsibility to discharge of the people. We see it both in verse 2 and in verse 4. And that is to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The office of deacon is then established to allow the apostles to focus on that responsibility. So on one hand, you have the apostles taking care of the spiritual needs of the saints, while these seven men are raised up to tend to their physical needs. This divided responsibility seems to be reflected in the office of elder and deacon. Again, elders are overseers. And they really only have one qualification that differs from the office of deacon when you examine the list of qualifications. And that's the ability to teach. So it would appear that the pattern we see here in Acts 6, the apostles caring for the spiritual oversight of the church, while these seven then tend to the physical oversight, is later reflected in the official structure with the office of elder, overseer, and deacon, servant. So if we're asking ourselves, what does the deacon do? This is the first answer to that question. They care for the physical needs of the saints. This is an often overlooked aspect of the deacon's function in the church. For example, of the two offices listed in the New Testament, elder and deacon, most Baptist churches tend to really only have one. And those are deacons. That's a very common arrangement in Southern Baptist churches. You have a pastor, and then you have a board of deacons. The pastor may or may not be regarded as an elder, but even when he is regarded as an elder, it's not with a plurality of elder, elders. There's just one elder, and then a board of deacons. And then when you start digging into how the deacons function in these churches, what you find is that they very often act like a board of directors. In other words, they do a lot of decision-making for the church, They'll work with budgets and building maintenance. They'll help move the congregational voting structure so the church can make hiring decisions and the like. But they don't necessarily do the shepherding work of the church, nor are they intentional about caring for the physical needs of the saints. Functionally, they're part deacon, part elder, but they're neither deacon nor elder entirely. They're kind of in between. And and this is common. It's not just Baptist churches that do this. There are lots of churches that see deacons as nothing more than building managers and the like. They administrate the affairs of the church. They're viewed as, as managers, really, not ministers. But this isn't the New Testament model. Do you know what the deacon should be doing according to the New Testament model? They should be getting involved in the lives of church members who are struggling financially. And they do this so that they can then decide to what degree the church can and even should help. That's not always an easy question to answer. If you go to places like 1 Timothy 5, for instance, you know, Paul indicates in 1 Timothy 5 that there are some widows who should be supported by the church. And then he says that there are some who should not. In other words, the church has a responsibility to be a good steward of its finances, and this means that it must be deliberate in choosing when to help a brother or sister out. There are instances when a brother or sister is struggling financially, and it's because of their own sinful or foolish choices, and it isn't always good for them spiritually to assist them then. That's not to say you don't still show compassion or love. You always do that. But just like discipline is sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a child, so also there are moments where you hold back a little bit in love. To know when to do that requires not only biblical knowledge, but tremendous wisdom, discernment, and it also also requires a substantial level of involvement in a person's life. It's not about just blindly distributing funds. It's about soul care. And that's why you need deacons. Because the soul care required in tending to the physical care of the saints takes time. It's personal. And so ideally, the deacons are working alongside the elders as they tend to the physical needs of the church. They're making themselves aware of the physical needs of the saints. They're taking the time to invest themselves in the lives of the saints at that level to the degree that they know the people of the church and and understand what struggles they're going through both physically and spiritually. And then the deacons and elders are communicating with one another as the deacons determine the appropriate level of financial care that the church should provide. This is the type of things that deacons should be doing. They're not just managers. They're ministers. Of course, there are a number of other ways that they might tend to the physical needs of the saints as well. If someone in the church is moving, for instance, who's who's the natural fit to step forward and organize the church to help them move? That would be the deacon. If a woman in the church has had a baby, who's the one who will be the first to organize meals for the family? The answer, again, is the deacon. The deacon. If someone's in the hospital, who's checking to see if their pets are still getting fed and their yard is getting mowed, and then organizing that effort? Again, the deacon. You put this alongside the work that the elders are doing, and you have a powerful one-two punch for the shepherding care of the church. A loved one passes away, for instance, and as the elders make themselves available to the family for spiritual counsel, as they perhaps even help arrange the memorial service with the family, the deacons are there in the background taking care of the tangible needs of that family. Again, they're organizing the meals. They're checking to make sure extended family has the appropriate lodging and transportation. They're busy communicating service times and and where to send flowers and the like to outsiders. Basically, as the family is forced to make all these different decisions in a very short amount of time, the deacons step in to become the hands and feet that help execute those decisions so the family can stay focused spiritually through the morning process. I'm starting to to get the picture here of what a deacon does. And can you begin to see why these men are so important to the life of the church? Why this office is needed in addition to the elders? I can tell you from experience that it's very difficult to keep an eye on both realms. To be vigilant both for the physical needs of others, faithfully administrating those kinds of tasks, while at the same time also trying to think through challenges that, that people are facing spiritually. What the office of deacon does is it frees up those men who are best equipped to handle the spiritual challenges, to put all of their attention on that task so that the church is able to receive the very best of both the physical and spiritual care that the church has to offer. And this leads us to the second part of the deacon's role. We've already said that the the deacon is there primarily for the physical care of the saints, but there's a second observation that I think we can make from this passage, which helps us understand what the deacon might be called to do. And this comes from the reason the apostles first started this office, which is explained in verses 2 and 4. What does the deacon do? Again, number one, they care for the physical needs of the saints. And then number two, they allow the elders to focus on the spiritual oversight of the church. They allow the elders to focus on the spiritual oversight of the church. In other words, from this passage, and from the title deacon itself, we can see that deacons were first established to care for the physical needs of the saints. And so this should be a substantial part of their work. But I don't know that we should define the office so narrowly as to say that this is all they might be called to do. And I say this because the apostles indicate that they came up with this office because of another more foundational need. And that's the spiritual care of the church. Can you understand what I'm getting at here? The deacons are created to care for the physical needs of the saints. But the reason why they're called to tend to those needs is so that their spiritual needs might be adequately addressed. In short, they're actually, they actually exist less for the physical care of the saints and actually more for the spiritual care of the saints. That's the root issue that the disciples saw needed to be addressed. Physical needs needed to be addressed, but, but not to the detriment of spiritual care, and so the office of deacon was created. The office of deacon was therefore created to ensure the proper spiritual care of the saints. In this respect, the fact that their first job was to distribute food to the widows is, is somewhat incidental. It was, this, the first, it was the first issue in the church that started to pull the apostles away from their primary responsibility. But presumably, there could have been any number of other problems that would have done the same thing. And I think it's probably reasonable to conclude, based on what the apostles say here, that they would have delegated responsibility to an elected body of men in those instances as well. They had a primary foundational task, and that was to teach the Word of God, to pray, and they understood that they were to be devoted wholly to that task. So if anything was going to interfere with that, they would take the steps needed to correct it. It's the the body at work. The apostles know their role in the body. And as they oversee the health of the body, they recognize it would not be wise for them to devote themselves to another function. And so deacons are appointed. It's like if you ever tried to pick up a, 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 pick up a pencil with your foot, right? It's not that you can't do it, but hands are better for the task, right? Or if you've ever tried walking on your hands, I mean, it's possible, but why would you ever do that when you have two feet perfectly suited for the task? That's the dilemma the apostles recognize in Acts 6, and that's ultimately why deacons are created, to allow the head to continue to function like a head instead of a pair of hands. The apostles are are basically deciding that the church isn't going to pick up a pencil with its teeth. There's wisdom in this. Everyone has a role to play. So the purpose of the deacons is really to free up the elders for their job. And, And while they're going to do this primarily by caring for the physical needs of the saints, again, that's their primary job, I don't think it's fair to conclude that this is how they do it exclusively. Again, that's one way they contribute to the spiritual care of the body, but presumably there are many other tasks that would also allow the elders to be more fully dedicated to their job, that the deacons can pick up. For instance, take our church. We have two elders there's myself and there's Clint. Clint, of course, is out sick today. He's not here. Uh, right now, Clint more or less oversees the finances of the church. Uh, he collects the offerings, he makes the deposits. Uh, he pays essentially all the bills that are there to be paid. At the end of the year, he sends out statements to everyone who's contributed uh, to the church. He sends out these statements telling them how much they've contributed so they can make the appropriate deductions on their tax returns. Um, when we have tax, you know, statements that need to be made to me, he helps handle that. He handles all of that, all the financial aspects of the church. That's really in, in his boat. And he does this in addition to the job he works during the week. And in addition to the shepherding responsibilities he has as an elder, that's elders' meetings on two Thursday evenings out of the month. That's, that's phone calls back and forth as he and I are working on shepherding issues together. That's hospital visits and individual appointments here and there to meet with people who need counsel. That's, that's teaching the occasional Sunday school class. And, of course, that's not including his involvement in other church activities. Home fellowship, two Wednesdays out of the month. Theology for breakfast, two Friday mornings out of the month and all the reading that is associated with that. Now, I say that, but, and that's all been pretty manageable so far, because, again, we're pretty small. There haven't been a lot of hospital visits, visits up, at the, up to this point, not a ton of phone calls back and forth. Clint hasn't been called on to teach Sunday school very often so far, but I think you can still see my point. As we grow, those things become more frequent. And the question that comes up is, is it very reasonable... Or even wise to have Clint be responsible for sending out statements about annual giving at the end of the year when he has all these other responsibilities that he's been called to do as a shepherd. But at the same time, if it's not Clint doing that, then who? I mean, I think it probably goes without saying that you shouldn't hand over access to the church's finances to just anyone, right? Shouldn't there be some kind of qualifications that a person has to meet before you give them that kind of responsibility in the church? Shouldn't there be some sort of vetting process that takes place before someone has that kind of access to the church's finances? And that's where the deacons come in. We'll get into this more next week, but the the deacons have to meet the kind of qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy 3 precisely for this reason, because they are given a very real kind of authority in the church, and it needs to be proven that they're capable of handling that responsibility, that they have the character necessary to handle those responsibilities. The word deacon means simply servant, and that tells you about all you need to know about the role they play in the church. They are the servants of the church. Again, if the elders are the head, if they're giving oversight to the body, leading and directing it, then the deacons are the hands and the feet. The elders give direction and the deacons help execute that direction. And in case you think that I'm implying that this means that the deacons are somehow less than the elders, let me correct that thought. This is how we can think sometimes that deacons are kind of a second class leader in the church. Listen, that's not how the body works. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. It's not a matter of importance or significance. It's a matter of role. <clears throat> I mean, just as the Father decrees, right? And the Son executes and the Spirit empowers and none is less than the other, such is the body of Christ. We perform different roles, but one is not more important than the other. We are one, and the work we accomplish, we accomplish as a team effort. We all share in the glory. It's not my works versus your work. It's simply our work, and Christ gets all the glory, and we share in the reward together. So this isn't a secondary office. Deacons may be under the authority of elders, but it's not because they're less important or less qualified necessarily than the elders. Their qualifications are essentially the same, and they perform... Uh, The the, the work they perform, they perform jointly with the same goal in mind, and that's the spiritual edification of the saints. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.13, he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. It's not a lesser role that they play. It's a vitally important role. Without their help, the elders will fail to give the church the care it requires. And the result will be exactly what you start to see here at the beginning of Acts 6. Unity will be threatened. The testimony of the church will be undermined without the faithful work of the deacon. People will begin to see the church's neglect and they'll think it's intentional. And they'll start to become either disillusioned with the church over what they perceive to be a lack of care, or they'll begin to grumble against one another without the work of the deacon. And we don't want that, right? See, we we, we may not be at a point where we need to install this office just yet, but it's certainly not an office that you want to install too late. It's wise to fill the office before the need is there, because if you wait too long, the damage is already done. Dissension has already been sown in the body. and It's going to take a lot of skill and care to pull pull out of that. So again, we want to begin accepting nominations for this office so we can see it filled. And next week, I'm going to explain more about what the ideal candidate for this office should look like as we explore the authority and qualifications of the deacon. As far as today's message goes, I would say that the function of this office means that you should probably be looking at three qualities in the man that will take this office. Just as far as, just if we're looking at function, I'd say that there's three qualities you should probably probably be looking for in the man who will take this office. And before I explain these qualities, I want to stress something. These are not, these qualities I'm going to list here, they're not necessarily the qualifications you're going to find in 1 Timothy 3. Though there's obviously going to be some overlap. And let me tell you why that matters. It matters because the qualifications that we'll discuss next week are more of a kind of of bare minimum for the office. In other words, they're the kind of thing that can really disqualify a man's candidacy more than they will prove that he's the ideal deacon. They just say he's not fit for the office if he doesn't meet at least these. In other words, when you give us nominations, uh, Clint and I are going to assess those nominations uh, based on whether or not the standards in 1 Timothy 3 disqualify a, 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 nom- a nominee from the office. That doesn't mean that he'll necessarily do the job well. It's just saying there's, there's nothing that prevents him from taking the office. This is where your responsibility and, and the importance of your nominations come in. Your nominations shouldn't be based simply on whether you or not you think a man matches the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. There are lots of people that can meet those standards who still probably wouldn't necessarily be great deacons. They'd be qualified for the office but they may not be the best choice. You need to decide who will do this job well. Nominate them, and then Clint and I will do the work of seeing whether or not 1 Timothy 3 disqualifies them. So what characteristics make up a good deacon? I think from this passage you can determine probably at least three. Uh, First, they're, they're probably going to be someone who's naturally attuned to the physical needs of the body. So for instance, just like it's logical to assume that elders have the gift of teaching. It's also logical to assume that deacons will probably have what is sometimes referred to as the gift of mercy. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case. I don't think that gifts always have to match the office. And I say that because the New Testament doesn't really give us any way definitively to discern our spiritual gifts. So I think you could certainly have a man in that office who does not have that gift. It's not a requirement. All I'm saying is that some people are obviously more attuned to the physical needs of others, and those are the ones that are probably going to be a more natural fit for the office. Take me, for instance. That's probably not my strong suit. The way my mind works, I'm wired for teaching. It's what I'm going to do whether you give me the office to do it with or not. Even back when I was a new believer, I would try to start one-on-one Bible studies with the people around me. i, I try to start up a, a book study with our singles group because that's where I naturally see needs. It's the direction I move in. Physical needs are a completely different story. When someone, you know, someone will have a, a family member pass away, and my first thought is we need to go visit them. We need to pray with them. We need to open up the Scripture with them, talk with them about that. And then like a day later, I'll, I'll go, oh, and I guess maybe we should bring them some food too. Like that just doesn't, That's not my first thought. It's not my natural bent. I'm probably more suited for the office of elder than I am the office of deacon. That's not to say I couldn't function as a deacon. I'm just saying that there are going to be men who could probably do it better than me. It's not my natural bent. It's going to be the other way around for others. There may be men in this church for whom teaching and discipleship is not their first thought. But when there's a physical need... They recognize it immediately, and they're on it. Those would be the ones who would probably be best suited for this office. So, so someone who's, who's naturally attuned to the physical needs of the body, that's the first thing I would be looking for if I'm trying to think of who to nominate. Second, I'd be looking for someone who has a servant's heart. Someone who has a servant's heart. This should, this should really go almost without saying. The word deacon means servant, Right? So look for those who are serving. This is important, not only because of the time it takes to do this job well, but also because of the role this office plays in the church. It's so critical that they be someone who has a servant's heart. If if I could illustrate it like this. If you've ever played football, then you know that teams employ a fullback. And a fullback doesn't necessarily have the most glorious position because of what they do. But it's still a very important role. What the fullback does is when the quarterback hands the ball to the running back, the fullback charges out front and they block for the running back. He helps move the ball downfield by absorbing tacklers for the running back. Now, no one ever thinks of the fullback because they never have the ball in their hands. But coaches know it's hard to underestimate the value of a really good fullback. This requires a special type of person to do that, to say, you know, I don't care the role I play on the team. I don't care if people recognize me or not. I just want us to get the ball across the goal line. In a sense, that's what the deacon does. They don't share the same kind of visibility that elders tend to experience, but they help move the ball downfield by essentially blocking for the elders. That requires humility. It requires a servant's heart. In other words, the man who's suited for the office of deacon is flexible. He cares less about what he's asked to do and more about the fact that it's helpful, that it's useful to the body. So how do you know who's suited for this office? Well, look around you and see who's serving. In fact, don't just look look for who's serving. Look for the ones who are serving in the background, the ones who are serving where they think no one's looking. The ones who are serving not for the attention they receive, but simply because they want to be helpful, those are men who are well-suited for this office. Those are the types of men who will make excellent deacons. Finally, look for the leaders. Look for the leaders. Deacons may be servants, but they're servant leaders. This point can be overlooked, but it really shouldn't. This is so, so important. If you look at the purpose of this office... It's under the authority of the elders, but there's almost a sense in which it should function almost autonomously. Almost autonomously. What I mean is that the men who do this job shouldn't require a lot of oversight. They should be able to do their job more or less on their own. Reason being, they're supposed to be giving the elders less to do, not more. So like if a, de- if a deacon lacks the confidence to make decisions, and so they're always needing to go to the elders to- for approval before doing anything, that actually kind of undermines the purpose of the office. The elders are still doing the, the same amount of work as before. Likewise, if a deacon requires the elders telling them to get engaged in a particular work before they do it, again, this is putting the responsibility for physical care back on the elders' play, and it's undermining the purpose of the office. In other words, the ideal deacon is someone who doesn't wait to be asked to serve. They just start doing it. They just start serving. They demonstrate initiative. And this makes sense. And, you know, If you understand the role of this office. If I could put it this way, I don't know if this will make any sense to you or not, but if I could put it this way, they have the confidence to make mistakes. By that, I don't mean that they're reckless, but they know enough about God's Word, and they trust enough in His grace that they're not afraid to act. They're they're decisive. So ask yourself, who in our church does that? Who demonstrates initiative? Who steps forward and gets involved without having to be asked? Who has the confidence to be decisive? Now, I would say just one more time. So those are the three qualities I would be looking at. But I would just say one more time that these qualities describe the ideal candidate. And there certainly may be men appointed to the office who are less than ideal. I mean, while I may be qualified uh, to serve as an elder, I'm under no illusion that I'm the ideal candidate for the office, right? And I would assume Clint would say the same thing about himself. We're all imperfect vessels. And that's the beauty of, of a plurality of leadership, where one man may fall short in one area, the other is able to pick up the slack. So don't think I'm saying someone needs to check every single box to be nominated, but at the same time, weigh carefully whether someone is a good fit for the office, because we're not doing anyone any favors by calling a man to do a task that God has not equipped him for. Next week we'll discuss the authority and qualifications of the deacon, and I'll try to get in a little bit more detail about how the nomination for our process, or not, not how the nomination process for our church works then. In the meantime, let's close by asking that God would give us the discernment to recognize the men that he would have appointed to this office. Let's pray.